0: Denmark Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Alan Ho, here with Maria Barakal and some distinguished guests, which she'll introduce uh, on New Retina Radio's continuing coverage of the COVID-19 crisis uh, globally and around the world. Uh, I'll turn it over to Maria to introduce our guests, and this is an interactive uh, discussion, so for the attendees, know that you can message us questions. Maria?
2: Yes. Thank you, Alan. Uh, I'm gonna introduce my, uh, our panelists, which are a diverse group throughout from Latin America. We have Dr. Lita Wu from San Jose, Costa Rica. We have uh, Mariana Martinez Castellanos from Toluca, Mexico. And we have Gustavo huff from Porto Alegre, Brazil. Welcome.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. It's been uh, interesting because different regions of the world have been affected uh, by this virus at different rates. Uh, for example, my, my daughter was in Argentina a day before they locked down and everything, so she had to buy a ticket very quickly to exit. And I think it has to do with the way, you know, the demographics has been and the spread has been so uh, Latin America has been affected a little bit uh, later. Uh, Lita, if you could comment on, you know, your experience there.
4: Yeah, so our first case was uh, around March 6th, and it was actually in a case from a tourist from New York City. It was uh, actually towards the end of her trip, and she felt sick, so she was tested, and uh, she tested positive with her husband. Her husband was asymptomatic, so then they were quarantined. And after that, we've had around 650 cases so far with uh, four fatalities. And we're still in the, we're not in a complete lockdown. We are still um, advising uh, social distances. Uh, There are certain businesses that are closed. For instance, in my practice, I'm only seeing uh, emergencies and urgencies but other, uh, other folks are seeing, you know, the whole, <laughs> the whole uh, like normal. So uh, it's a little bit uh, surreal, but so far uh, it seems like the government is sort of banking like having halfway measures. So it's kind of like Sweden in a way. So that is a little bit scary. Maybe in a month or so we'll see what happens here.
2: And Mariana, what, what has the experience been in Mexico? I know that uh, originally the government basically denied that this was going to be a problem in Mexico. So if you can comment.
5: Well, the government is, a, our new government is a populist government. And they at the beginning even thought for 11 weeks, the world knew about the virus and the spreading. They were denying. And many people believe that it's a Political issue more than a real disease. So you see people walking in the street. A lot of 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 stores and businesses are open and still working. Some people wear masks, but it's going. To, it's very difficult to make people understand that there is a real problem when the government is denying. That the problem is there, and most of the actions that have been taken here in medicine and in different uh, in different scales of, of of working areas have been taken by the private. Uh, so, uh, for example, our hospital that is a private hospital started using the wearing the mask and shields and things before the government asked it for for the general hospitals to do it, because we knew how things were outside. But the problem is that the government is denying that the problem is there. We
1: yeah, don't even uh, have
5: numbers, real numbers.
2: Yes. And Gustavo, I know that uh, you have a, a somewhat similar situation in, in Brazil, can you, can you comment?
3: Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be this distinguished team. Uh, The first case in Brazil was at the end of February, okay, it was a businessman who came from Italy, and before he had confirmed his case, he had a family party with around 40 or 50 people, and that was one of the ways we think we had spread it. But some people say we already had it gen- in January, and in February had Carnival. Of course, no one in this government would try to block Carnival in Brazil. Okay, that's much more important than anything. What's special about Brazil so far? Yesterday we changed our health minister. If there was a fight between the president, who wanted to open to finish the lockdown, while our health minister wanted to keep it longer because there was this discussion, lives versus economy, which I think it doesn't exist, okay? And so far in Brazil, we have almost 2,000 deaths confirmed for coronavirus and around 30,000 people who had been positive. But this is not a true number because we are not testing much people here.
2: And, uh, And what precautions are you taking, you know, in your clinic, per se? What type of patients are you seeing? Uh, you know, what surgeries are you doing? Are people doing elective surgeries?
3: So we work in a team, we are around 12 doctors here, and I am the only one who is, on, who is not in the risk group, okay? Most of them are more than, more than 50, or hypertensive, or diabetic, so I am, the, I am the one. And most of the time we are seeing foreign bodies because we live in a rural area, okay? And I also do a lot of traumas. I've been seeing one, been doing one vitrectomy every one or two days. And it's really difficult to operate in the oculars without having the lens foggy when you are using mask, glasses, and you cannot use a shield. But I'm gonna share a picture where you can see some friends who are doing 3D surgery. That's where I am in South Brazil, the blue dot in the middle. You can see this picture. Here, people are using their 3D glasses and diving masks. And for 3D, it's perfect, okay? It's much better than ocular. So for people who have it, it's my
1: suggestion.
2: It must get a little hot inside.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So so this is an interesting discussion about, uh, and that's a very... um, very interesting way to do 3D viewing. It's certainly one of the advantages of not being up in the oculars. Another way, if you don't have that ability, is to use, of course, tape on your masks so that you can prevent the flow of air through your, in the clinic with with goggles or with glasses. Um, Daniel Ting on the Asian global coverage uh, showed us a grid of what people were doing in different countries uh, in the clinic or in the operating room. And the grid included several things, uh, mask, goggles, gown, uh, what type of mask, N95 versus regular operating room. And then he, he showed us based on different countries, what different countries are doing. And the general theme was, if your country is worse hit by COVID-19 and COVID-19 mortality and morbidity, all those countries, the eye care providers wore more protective, personal protective equipment. Where you guys are, where the, the disease has been so far muted, maybe earlier on all the curves that we're looking at, infected, intubated, death, et cetera, it seems to me that you might be using less. What are you doing for yourselves in the clinics? What are you doing for yourselves, aside from the very, very very neat uh, scuba masks uh, in the operating room? Maybe I'll ask Mariana to answer first.
5: So uh, I'm wearing three masks. The, the, The really thin ones, and then the N95, and then another mask over it. And there is a problem with the mask and the glasses like these glasses. Because I have presbyopia, I, I can't read <laughs> near. And when I wear all these things on my nose, the glasses go up. So my focal point on the, on the my optics center in the glasses are, is loose. And it's not the, the only, I am not with this problem, not the only one with this problem. Many of us will have the, the glasses up here and then we have to wear, wear the goggles. So I have to go back for my monofocal glasses. It's complicated to see through goggles and the mask. And I, wear, I use also a, an acrylic box. I, I see a lot of babies. I use an acrylic box. So I have the box, my shield, my goggles, and my glasses. So seeing through all of that is complicated. For surgery, I only wear the, the shield, my, my, my own glasses but we dress a little bit different, the patients. And the way we dress them is we put a, a shield that we stick it from the nose down, complete shield, that uh, a five point degree shield from the nose down. And then we put a tube the tube goes, goes all the way out, a, a la- large tube that, that goes all the way out. So what the, whatever the, the patient is breathing goes out of the, of the room actually so we're taking some precautions that they are not written anywhere we're just like making up things to trying to be safer
1: and and, uh, in your clinic are you are the patients that you're seeing are they coming in with are you giving them masks or gloves or anything like that
5: we give them masks and we 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 stick them here with the micropore we stick them here we give them the mask. And I'm having a huge amount of patients with uh, accidents in the house because they are remodeling, painting, is, doing things that they usually don't do. And the, the number of accidents of in, in the house are, are super high because of how they clean. They, they have chlor, chlorine or alcohol in the eyes or glue or nails. It's a different statistic that someday we will maybe see because I'm sure the orthopedics are seeing the same people that fall from ladders or things that because they are cleaning or painting or doing something different in their homes.
1: How about you, Lite? What's going on in Costa Rica? So I've decided to
4: actually just see emergencies and urgencies. So we kind of screen the patients and we ask them whether or not they have fever, those kind of things. We ask the patients to when they come to have uh, a mask. And if they don't, we sort of provide them. Then uh, once they come in, uh, we offer them gel. We ask them that they only come with one other person. Limit the talking and uh, limit the testing. Uh, So really no routine OCTs. If they're coming for an injection, just take them and inject them. Uh, I myself, I wear uh, gloves. Um, <clears throat> a face mask, uh, um, an N95 covered by a regular surgical mask, and eye protection. And actually, I haven't gone to the OR. I've had to do, uh, like, three pneumatics. So, you know, <laughs> that's how it is.
1: And Gustavo, what's happening there for patients and for you, aside from the scuba mask and the <laughs> Sure. Uh,
3: since in the region we are, we still don't have as many cases as in other places. Uh, we, uh, I am using masks and I'm putting masks on patients as well. Like LITE, I'm not seeing regular patients, just uh, emergencies. And that's also an issue I think we can discuss later about the, the anti-VGF treatments. People, because many of my patients who I know they need to keep treating they don 't want to come because they are afraid of that, and in general globes as well And we also have done a as you said Alan, a transparent shield around this lit lamp so to avoid the to spread the the the, the, the droplets
2: yes I, I have a question uh, what, what I have been doing in Puerto Rico we you know mm-hmm. we have probably the strictest uh, guidelines. Everybody has to wear a mask outside of the house, and we have a curfew at 7 p.m. And what I'm doing, you know, with injections, it is a problem because a lot of patients do not want to come in. Have any of you been doing telemedicine? Because, for example, I've been calling patients, see how they're doing. The ones that really don't want to come right in, we postpone the injection a couple of weeks to see if things, you know, become more stable. Have any of you been using any of those modalities?
4: Yes, I actually give them my cell number and we discuss things, but I mean, it's, it's not ideal because in our specialty, we, we actually need to see something, you know, see an image, see the fundus or anything. So, I mean, it's more like hand-holding for them more than anything else and show them that we're available if they if think they this, you know.
5: I, I, I open for the clinic an Skype account And we make IP calls all the afternoon. Yesterday we had like almost 23 calls, so it is working. And um, in the NICU, I have this Victor camera, and I trained one of the nurses inside the NICU. I pay him, pay her. Uh, apart and she makes the pictures, she sends them to me and if I have to inject a baby I go to the NICU to, to treat the baby. But that's the way I do it. The, the, the nurse is already there so I just pay her a pay uh, a little extra so she can make the pictures.
1: I think Maria brings up a really important point and your comments reflect that telaretina is really right now, mostly a psychological session of comforting patients or, or, or a way to flag a patient and bring them in sooner for an injection, for example. But, and I think this would be a good topic for, for discussion. Clearly, as we come out of this COVID dark tunnel, society, healthcare, retinal care is going to change. And there are some technologies that are remote um, that, are, that were in clinical trials, for example, uh, at-home OCT, an OCT that's a box that sits on your table for your patient and looks in. Uh, it's been validated. It was in a trial in Israel, and now it's moving, fast-tracking through FDA in the United States and hopefully elsewhere to establish it as a home device that will make tele- retina relevant. We have to collaborate in our ecosystem with industry device makers to figure out what we need to keep patients safe and to make teleretina relevant. I think, I think this is something, you know, we need smart people like everyone on this panel to begin thinking about this so that we can actually envision what it will mean to be, to have a, a useful teleretina visit.
2: The other thing that, I, that I, I, I agree with you completely, I think you know, we have in many ways, uh, the typical retina visit has not really changed that much probably in 80 years, you know, it's pretty much the same. And I think this is an opportunity moving forward to do things differently. Maybe we don't really need to see post-op patients as frequently, maybe we can do a lot of that uh, by phone. I know that you can have apps where you can test your vision uh, you know, just like the home OCT is another modality. And I mean, we really have to like rethink this notion that, you know, maybe, maybe uh, having people come monthly for an injection is a really uh, un- onerous thing, you know, not only uh, for the patients, but for, for every part, every aspect of society, they have to take time off, the ones that are young, all this. So we really have to like think outside of the box of how to actually... Uh, Make things uh, streamline a lot of our practices, and I think this is a unique opportunity. I always see tragedies uh, as—I always say that every single tragedy has a gift if you look hard enough. And I think you know this is an opportunity to really reassess and think how we can do things better and what things that we were doing really don't make that much sense, you know. Uh, And I and I think a, a lot of good things will come out of this. Uh, Also, I think as doctors, as physicians, we're being valued more because our worth is being seen by society. You know, when this big pandemic, you know, the scientific knowledge gets a new uh, and incremental value, the value of vaccines, a lot of the things that maybe, you know, have gone down the wayside in the past. Uh, what, what I really think is that people are going to be, you know, one of the problems that we have is that, you know, vaccination rates have come down all through all the countries. And I think there's going to be a renewed interest in vaccines, you know, to think that only half of the people get the flu vaccine, even though it's so beneficial, you know, in the States and it causes so many deaths. You know, with the interest with having a COVID vaccine, I think vaccination in general you know, we'll be seeing more. I think uh, this is a unique opportunity for us, uh, for doctors to band together and maybe get more resources for hospitals so that this doesn't happen. The fact that with globalization, most of the medicines are done, are made in China uh, and not here. You know, there's a lot of of issues that... uh, Uh, a a lot of policies that have happened just because they're they're like the cheapest option. Well, not always the cheapest option is the best option. So I think, you know, uh, thinking about that uh, and moving forward, there's a lot of opportunities uh, of how we can do things better and safer moving forward.
1: Gustavo, you
3: had a comment. Sure, I would like to add something which I think we are gonna see in a future which is not very far. Every year we are seeing our cell phones with better cameras, with better options, with better things. I think we'll, we're going to see probes or devices that will get attached to our cell phones and you'll have OCT, auto refractor, biometry, everything done at home. And another thing I which we should reconsider, but there is a big regulatory problem with that, it's the use of drones, delivering the medication or as we said, let's say we build a small OCT, a drone which takes the OCT to the house of the patient so he doesn't need to to buy it. He takes it, he uses it and the drone takes it back, back to the clinic. There are many options and I like to say that necessity is the mother of creativity. So for sure, we have our scientists and engineers creating new stuff to make people's life easier and better. Including in this, still, 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 in the same situation, every year the average age in the world is higher. So, in in in, in a decade or two, there will be many problem, uh, many people with locomotion problems. So, it's really tough for these people to go to our clinics and then to come back, then go again, and then come back again. We have to find a way to make their lives easier. So, to treat them at their home. Of course, we as doctors, we cannot see all our patients at their homes, so we have to use technology to help us on
1: that way i would I would very much agree with the the line of thinking of how we are envisioning the future maria's comment about <clears throat> you know crises uh, forcing us to examine things differently and coming out with new ways to and silver linings as she as she mentioned. We do have a question from the audience um, to encourage others to submit questions too. How does a home OCT work? It's literally an OCT scanner with the technology of, uh, of spectral domain that's simplified and put in a home box. The price comes down from the unit from thousands and tens of thousands of dollars to hundreds of dollars. And it's something that uh, I can vouch for exists. I've I've been kind of working with Notal Vision on one uh, version. There are several companies that do this. And it's something that, that speaks to all th- this line of thinking of technology helping us make a tele retina visit, not just retina, but in medicine better. One of the things that I had the opportunity to go to a pharma company recently to give a visiting lecture talk. And I... And I I reminded them that in the late 80s, 1990s, um, Fortune Fortune Magazine, for example, the most admired companies in North America, around the world, according to this poll, were pharmaceutical companies. For example, Merck pharmaceutical companies. They brought revolutionary drugs for hypertension, for lipid management in that era. I mean, they were among the most for innovation, and and for improving public health. Now, if you look at most admired companies in the Fortune 500 survey annually, it's services companies. It's companies that serve, for example, Google services, Amazon services, Apple hardware, but really, at its core, services. So I encourage the pharma companies to think not just about what's very important, the the vaccinations, the, the biological therapy, the immunotherapies uh, <clears throat> that transform lives, but also the services, the health services that get us there. For example, Gustavo mentioned this, this as, a, think about why can't a diabetic patient do this and get it to us and, and solve, begin to bend the curve on diabetic blindness which is a problem for all of us and globally, uh, for every, every country that we've spoken to in this series. You know, I think hopefully the pandemic, the accelerated processes that, that this forces us to think about will allow us to work with, with partners to, to make it better. Very good.
5: Mariana. Yeah. And also we have to think about uh, artificial intelligence, the learning programs, for example, now we're working with, with Microsoft in a program that is learning how to say this baby needs treatment, this baby does not need treatment. Because sometimes we have uh, mistakes, especially in, in, in ophthalmologists that are not uh, uh, trained in a NICU. They are trained somewhere else and they have to be learning just like that to screen babies. So we're working in, in, in artificial intelligence. And eventually I think that you could go and get, just like a scan of your retina. And in that moment, you will have your diagnosis. And then it's when you go for, to, to see the, the retina specialist for your treatment. And that is going to lower cost and make uh, health accessible to more people in centers like because as Mexico City or, or, or India, that the population is huge and there are not enough doctors to see all of the diabetics or or the screen all all of the the babies in in our case. So artificial intelligence I also think is going to be uh, moving forward faster now. I do believe that some legislation regarding uh, research is, is going to change the paperwork that sometimes you just submit your idea and it takes like forever, one year, until you can start doing your research probably now is going to be faster and easier just submit something in the internet and, and start doing your research. And academics are also going to change a lot because we found out that we can do things like we're doing it now. For example, our classes with the residents now before it was just one person of the faculty that was joining the class. Now we're everybody is in the class and we invite people from other hospitals. Is, academics is going to change. There are may, going to be many changes for good. but it takes, um, it takes a lot of work behind that to, to change things, but we're going to be pushed to, be, to do that.
2: Yeah, there's, uh, thank you, Mariana. There's, there's, that's a very good point. There's another question from the audience uh, that they wanna know, what measures are you planning for post COVID? How to increase productivity and which cases will be prioritized? And I think Lite can answer this because he's in uh, a significant shutdown.
4: So um, it really depends on the availability of uh, testing, I think. And it depends also on what the prevalence of the disease ends up being in each particular region. Like for instance, now in Costa Rica, we haven't really tested that many people. And on the surface, it looks like everything looks fairly controlled. As I mentioned uh, earlier, we only have like 650 cases, four have uh, died, unfortunately. Uh, but you know things seem to be under control Uh, and it really um, depends really how easy it will be to test and eventually what kind of uh, um, epidemic we have here in Costa Rica so if we really avoid most of the you know most of the infections throughout and it depends how quickly the country opens up to like uh, tourism and everything like that because right now the country is shut down. Uh, no one can enter the country unless you are a Costa Rican citizen, you know? So it, it, it really depends on the availability of testing, which is uh, a major issue, I think.
2: So that is, that is our issue here too. Our first case came through a cruise ship and we still have, we cannot, since we're part of the US, we cannot really like close our border. Uh, so we still have flights. And a week ago, two people took Tylenol. They knew they were infected, but they were from the New York area, which is really hard hit. So they came here. Uh, that We do have, uh, I don't think anywhere else in the US has it, but we have the screening, the temperature screening throughout the airport. Uh, but they passed that because they had, a taking medications to lower the fever. So, so that is really a, a big issue. I, I see the, the other issue is that in the south of Brazil, and I think Gustavo here, you know, your winter is starting now, right? Uh, so Perfect. if this virus is seasonal and it's worse in the winter like the flu is, then we're going to have these different waves in, in different places with potentially uh, different spread. Uh, how I envision opening up is right now I have uh, in Puerto Rico, everybody has to be masked. So everybody comes with a mask. I wear a mask. I have face shields for all my staff. Uh, I don't really wear a face shield because it's, it's, you know, that I can wear an indirect, but, uh, but I'm just going to start, you know, seeing patients that are more emergent patients that have worse disease and, and then go from there. And I think testing everybody that goes to the ORs Very important although we don't really have uh, a significant number of tests here yet which is uh, a big problem that we face too.
4: I I think one of the uh, problems is because there are different uh, prevalences of the disease going on throughout the world and once you start opening the country to flights you might get like a second wave, third wave like what they're seeing in Asia right now, you know? So that is a major concern uh, for everyone, I think.
1: Absolutely, they're, the uh, the the idea of reopening, by the way, we have regards from colleagues around the world, Dr. Pencar about the home OCT question and a couple people from Italy, uh, <clears throat> Fabio Patelli and Alberto La Mancha, both stressing the importance of Medicine and society and and our role and importance of investment from from government and in, in healthcare care um, we, we we see different um, kind of ways societies react to this we we see different leadership roles we have different governmental structures we have different private personal privacy thresholds in different countries uh, versus how much you allow the government to come and kind of do contact tracing, for example. <clears throat> can you can you locate me by cell phone? Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable with with um, the government following your credit card transactions so they know who was where at what time? In the United States, um, we've suffered from a late start on shelter home. We suffer from inconsistent messaging. Uh, we have a big diverse country. Um, You guys have lower rates of numbers, and yet it's interesting to me that Lite is taking a pretty strict, uh, and, and, and you guys both are, all three of you are, a pretty strict stance despite not much going on in the public. Here, we're in a phase where people are wearing masks and encouraged to wear masks outside. Tell us the temperature of what's going on for the public in your countries, because I think it kind of contrasts with where we've been with our Italy series and our Asia series.
4: So so let me start by saying, you know, I think people in Costa Rica are scared. I think people have seen what has happened in Europe and New York and we don't want that to happen here. So the most of the effort has been driven by the Ministry of Health. So fortunately there's one voice and everyone's sort of uh, listening to it and uh uh, we are encouraging everyone uh to use a face mask uh, a mask when you're outside even though it's not mandatory but uh, most people are doing that and people who can are working from home uh, most people are also practicing social distancing however there's a large segment of the population that they need to work, otherwise they starve. So, you know, that's the part of the balancing that uh, uh, the
1: country's trying to go through. How about in Mexico, Mariana?
5: Well, in Mexico, um, highly educated people that they see and read and go to Twitter and know see the news from other countries are really scared. And they are really taking the, the mask thing seriously, the the quarantine seriously, but there is a huge amount of, of population that they are still in the street working and they don't believe this is a real problem. They do believe it's a political problem and it's the adversaries of the president. They don't believe it, it, it is really happening. so the problem is going to be that kind of people because even when the quarantine was was already there, there was, for example, a huge concert in Mexico City, the the Vive Latino. And there were uh, thousands of people in that uh, concert,
1: more
5: more than 20,000 people. So they are not really taking it seriously, a, a huge amount of the population, a big amount of the population. So it's, it's really polarized, the, how the things are done. One part of the population is really scared and really doing what they have to do. And the other part of the population is just taking it like a vacation and they are working and doing whatever they, they, they are traveling in the subway, they are traveling in the bus. So it's going to be a big problem, in, I think in about a month. We're going to, to have really big problems in like a month.
1: How about, how about in Brazil, Gustavo? I'm really happy
3: that you mentioned the thing about freedom. How much are we willing to give up about our freedom in order to help this? I think we should ask a slave how much freedom from himself he would give away, okay? That's the first question. And the second question which I've been thinking and discussing with some friends it is, which are the criteria which are we are using to establish if we are going to lock down, when we are going to lock down and who are we going to lock down, okay? Why am I thinking about it? Because every year 1.3 million people in the world die because of car accidents, okay? And we never thought about shutting down our roads, okay? Because if you would say that, people would say you are crazy because of the economic impact. So why we are shutting down everything now? Of course, we had, I don't know how many uh, people did die, did die because of the coronavirus, One, 150,000 or 200,000, okay? All these lives matter, of course, but we, are, we still don't have uh, scientific criteria, very well established. We are afraid, of course, because it is something we don't know, but car accidents, we know very well, and we don't do, and we don't do nothing to stop them. So and same situation as Mariana here in Brazil it became a political issue we are not we are not thinking about lives or science we are the governors uh, are opposing the president others are shutting and locking down everything other governors want to open everything on the streets yes like little said people are afraid they are using masks as well most of people i see but in a poor country and i think all our countries have poor people they work during the day to eat at the night so how can you say these people cannot go out to work which which is the right we have to say that so it's a really critical question and it is a deep issue that i think we could stay here and speak a week on that
1: i think i think you highlight on a lot of uh, issues and in disparities of who's more vulnerable during a pandemic. And that, that, that data is starting to come out now, and it, clearly those that are still having to work, having to live, that live paycheck to paycheck, um, are more vulnerable. Other people that can shelter home and, and survive and have the resources to do so are more protected. I, I see, and we, we spoke about this on our Asian Global episode, I do see some cultural shifting, and let's just talk about the mask in general. If Alan Ho showed up on an airplane pre-COVID and wore a mask, someone might say, "Oh, he's just—he's Asian, and he's wearing a mask because he's Asian, or maybe he's sick." And and in some ways, that stereotype was is 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 somewhat accurate. But nowadays, uh, you know, many and the Asian doctors on our Asia. COVID coverage would say, well, it was really not so much a fear. There, There's some um, lag effect from SARS and MERS, which really impacted those regions significantly. And there was a fear factor in wearing masks. But it's also a now a cultural thing. It's a pollution issue um, in some of the more densely po- populated cities. And it's now not just... Uh, I'm Asian, I'm wearing a mask, uh, there's pollution, or I'm afraid of you. It's more of a sign of consideration of others, of civility. You can't see my face, but I'm thinking about you to protect you. We're in this together. And I, I do see a shift a little bit in the United States. You go to the grocery store here in Philadelphia, an East Coast densely populated city. More people are wearing masks, more people are spacing themselves, you know, there's some fear, but it's more of the culture is, you know, the world's very different in different areas, but in some ways, some of these behaviors are becoming more universal. So I don't know if that resonates with you all. I think that the pandemic again accelerates change, whether it's regulatory for a drug or a vaccine or a, or a new device, but even in just social behaviors, likely in central and South America.
5: It's a matter of, of uh, not only taking care of yourself. You have to understand that you live in community. And that is something that we're not always uh, taking consideration. If I am, if, if I am well, I'm, I'm fine. But now you have to think, if I am well, and my neighbor is fine, and the cleaning lady is fine, and the policeman is fine, and I am going to be fine, so now you have to think in community now we are really aware how connected we are with the other, even though we don 't know them, even thought you never say hello to that neighbor. Now you have to think about the the, the good health of your neighbor so you will, you will have a good health so community is uh, something that is is now going to be part of our our language every day.
2: Yes, uh, I agree with Mariana. I think this is like post-9-11, you know. We, it really brings people together. We realize that we are, even though like we like to think of ourselves as super individualistic, you know, we are really part of a global community and what affects other places will affect us. And I think we have to, like, see all the good things that other places are doing. I always thought that uh, what they they do in Asia, wearing masks is a lovely thing because if you have a cold, you wear a mask, so you are not gonna give it to anybody. So I think these are the, the positive things that I think will come out of all of this.
1: Litte, you you, any other thoughts?
4: No, I think uh, you've pretty much, uh, we've pretty much covered everything and you know, just uh, I'd like to say everyone stay safe.
1: Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree. I, I wanna thank all the uh, panelists for being here, for sharing this. And the the global series will continue. We want to thank our sponsors who are very supportive. Uh, We're in this together, in this this community uh, of of people, but also in the ecosystem of industry and technology that we're looking to work with to make things better. Um, Thank you all for sharing everything. Maria, any any closing comments? Maria Barakal?
2: Well, I think I the think series is super important. I think knowing what other people who are ahead of us and behind us, this is super helpful uh, for everybody moving forward. And I have learned a lot. I have listened to the others and I have learned a lot and uh, adapted some things to what I want to do uh, in my practice and when I open it. So thank you, Alan, and thank you, BMC.
1: OK, thank you. Thank you to all. And uh, we're going to sign off here. Take care, be safe, and stay well.
0: Bryn Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, herein BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on in this webcast podcast.